You're listening to a podcast from the Dorky Book Festival 2018. Robert Fisk is the multi-award winning Middle East correspondent of The Independent. He lived in the Arab world for more than 40 years, covering Lebanon, five Israeli invasions, the Iran-Iraq War, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Algerian Civil War, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, the American invasion, occupation of Iraq, and the 2011 Arab revolutions. Based in Beirut, Robert is just back from Syria. In this podcast, Pat Kenny chats to him at the Doki Book Festival. Good evening, everybody. And I have no doubt now that God is on our side. The shaft of light that's coming in to illuminate me and to illuminate Robert, I think, proves it. Um, you're very welcome to this event. I know Robert very well. We talk on radio regularly. I read what he writes regularly. And I know that you're all here because you're very anxious to get his take on what's going on in the Middle East and particularly in Syria. But I thought we might start this evening by going back a little bit, uh, maybe to the turn of the last century, the 19th turning into the 20th century, because perhaps that's where the seeds of all the difficulties that are evident in the Middle East uh, were sown. And uh, Robert has a few artifacts which he will reveal to you a little bit uh, uh, later on in the course of our conversation. But uh, Robert, let's go back to that time and how that region was configured. Was it tribal? Was it ethnic? Was it uh, divided along geographical grounds? Were there nation states based on religion or ethnicity? Well, it was the Ottoman Empire. And one of the reasons we fought the First World War was to destroy the Ottoman Empire. We knew it was collapsing like all empires do. The British later, the Americans perhaps in time to come, the Russians. And I think that we took the view, the British who were the principal you know, power in the region at the time from international point of view, the British wanted to safeguard the route to India, which meant that Egypt, Palestine, and these countries were vital to British security. And of course, we wanted the oil. During the First World War, Winston Churchill turned the Royal Navy into oil burning ships as opposed to coal. We realized at the very beginning that the um, oil of Iraq, the oil of Iran, or Persia as it then would have been called, Iraq would have been called Mesopotamia, was vital to us. And from the start, when the Ottomans foolishly decided to ally themselves with Germany and uh, Austria-Hungary, um, I think that, and if you go through British archives, you'll find that our intention was to split apart that region, divide it up tribally. Of course, tribes um, live there. I mean, this exists all over Spain now in, in terms of dividing up various nationalities. In Belfast, you can look at from recent past. Um, but it was, there was no doubt that the principle of divide and rule was very definitely carried out. In fact, from the mid-19th century, when the French and the British went in to stop a civil war in Lebanon, which the Ottomans had failed to stop, it was a war basically between Druze and Christians. Uh, the French moved military forces into Beirut and camped them in the Forêt des Pins, the pine forest of Beirut, where the French embassy still is today. You see it carries on. Um, and the French went in to defend the Christians. Uh, the British arrived in Sidon in wooden warships, and to show their friendship uh, for the Druze people, they offered the sons of Druze leaders a free education at English public schools, which I think they probably, if they were wise, did not accept. However, the point I'm making is that we were already 
long before the First World War, intent on breaking up the Ottoman Empire. None more so, of course, than the Russians. And we could see the, the benefits, for example, of getting the Armenians of the Ottoman Empire to side with the Allies or with the Russians. And the Turks used this excuse to destroy the Armenian people in the first genocide of the last century. The Armenian genocide, one and a half million dead, uh, of 1915. It lasted up to 1919 after the war had ended. So we saw a vast area that had a long history of non-belligerency between peoples, religions, and sects. Of course, under the Ottoman Empire, these divisions did show, and they did result in violence. But this was an Ottoman Empire, remember, that had accepted the Jews of Spain when they were thrown out of Spain in the 16th century, along with the Muslims, uh, many of whom, still speaking uh, a form of uh, Hebrew from Spain, actually were in Sarajevo when the war broke out there in 1992. Um, all, of course, are left over of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans were not actually as terrifying and awful as they're made out to be. They're, up to the First World War, they were moderately efficient. You could travel, after all, from Constantinople, today's Istanbul, to Algeria or to Arabia without a passport. You, you were an Ottoman citizen. Um, I've known uh, well Lebanese politicians whose fathers and grandfathers were in the Ottoman parliament in Istanbul, and on their walls they have the parliamentary pass for their Lebanese um, fathers as members of parliament. Uh, and the other thing to remember about the Ottoman Empire is that they wanted to be like us. You know, they, they, the, the, the sultans learned to play the piano. They learned to paint. Um, they uh, commissioned the Suez Canal from De Lesseps. They wanted to use Western industry. Um, they, uh, they, they brought a rack and pinion state-of-the-art railway to Beirut, to Lebanon. And they wanted to be like us, so we destroyed them. We destroyed them. The, the motivation for that destruction, uh, was it purely oil? and then throwing in a catalyst, which was uh, the Balfour Declaration, which gave rise ultimately to the State of Israel. Um, just put those two um, ingredients together, and what do we get? Look, in the First World War, like all countries at war, and this applies today, you offer your potential allies anything, promises, 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 even if you have no intention of honoring them. Um, under the, if you read the McMahon correspondence, and we won't go into the details of it, we promised the King of Arabia, as he was then, Saudis had not taken over Arabia, that we would give the Arabs total independence in the Arab world. That would effectively be from Algeria all the way to the border of Persia and Mesopotamia, Iran and Iraq. Um, the, um, in secret, the British hatched a plot to divide up the Ottoman Empire into bits, and the British would control Iraq because of oil, uh, they would control Palestine, they would control Egypt, which they were already in, the French would get Lebanon and Syria, greater Lebanon and Syria. Um, and when this was exposed, when the Russian Revolution happened, the Arabs said, well, hold on a second, you, you, you promised us freedom and independence in the Arab world. What's going on? You're, you're going to divvy it up between yourselves. And the British said, oh, we're going to have a mandate from the League of Nations. We're only here to protect you, of course. There may be a few areas, um, perhaps southwest of Damascus, which we're going to have to look after ourselves, Palestine. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 by Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, gave, and there were various reasons why it did this, partly uh, because the British wished to encourage the Jewish populations of Russia and America uh, and perhaps Jewish populations in 
uh, Germany fighting in the Ger German army to become more pro-allied. Um, the British published uh, the declaration of Lord, well, it wasn't then Lord Balfour, Arthur Balfour, Foreign Secretary, which said that Britain supported a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Um, it referred to the Arabs, who were the vast majority of the population, as non-Jewish communities. In other words, um, they weren't even called Arabs, they weren't called Christians or Muslims, they were just non-Jewish communities. I see the Balfour Declaration, it was only one sentence, by the way, 68 words. Uh, I see it as a handbook for refugeedom. Because once you decide that a minority is going to rule a country with the majority not rulers, you are going to have refugees in their hundreds of thousands. And that pretty much applies across the Middle East ever since. And of course, after the First World War, when you had the survivors of the Armenian Genocide, you had the survivors of the Russian Revolution, the white Russians moving, the Balfour Declaration didn't seem such a big deal to the rest of the world. And of course, after the Second World War, when the State of Israel was created, and around 750,000 Arab Palestinians, non-Jewish communities, uh, fled or were thrown from their homes. Um, at that period, the world was used to vast millions of refugees moving across Europe, fleeing the Nazis, fleeing the Russians, Poles moving into what had been Silesia, Russians moving into what had been the Polish Eastern territories, places like Lvov. And at that period, I don't think the world cared an awful lot about 750,000 Palestinians. They were just another refugees, more refugees on the move. So, but there's no doubt that the, that the, the, the treaties and agreements and promises of the First World War led to what we now see in the Middle East. One of the first acts of ISIS, Daesh, which was filmed by them, was not an execution. It, was not a, um, uh, it, it wasn't the burning alive of a Jordanian pilot. It was a bulldozer pushing over a sand earthen ramp, which was the border between Iraq and Syria. And stuck into the sand was a little piece of paper saying Sykes-Picot Agreement. Sykes was the British diplomat, François Picot was the French diplomat, who had agreed in the First World War to divide up the Middle East. ISIS was basically destroying the First World War treaties. And remember, we also made promises to the Jews. We said they would have a homeland in Palestine. We didn't say it would only be part of Palestine. We even implied that it might include what is now Jordan. So many Jews said, well, hold on a second, I thought we were going to get Palestine. Um, now they've got pretty much all of what was Palestine because of occupation, 67 war, and so on, but, and 73. But the fact of the matter is that we lied to both sides. We made promises to the Jews and promises to the Arabs, and we broke, we, the British, I'm not talking about. Um, uh, Robert, the uh, we broke that, our promises to both. The countries that we talk about today, and we identify them by um, their national flags, um, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, um, how long have they been identifiable as distinct countries? Or, in other words, do they have staying power? Because when we look at what was Yugoslavia, we see that actually it was made up of fragments uh, which were very different to each other, but kept together by Tito. Uh, and the and by the Ottomans at one point. And actually, by the yeah. Ottomans uh, also. But yeah. So, so what, what are these countries? Look, I have a theory, Pat, that if a country has a history, it will survive. Iran, Egypt, Lebanon, actually. Syria, because it was a governorate of the Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years. Uh, if a country does not have 
a history as a nation. Jordan, which was created by Winston Churchill, where you're already hitting street demonstrations now, but I still think they can hang on, or particularly Iraq, which was patched together again by Winston Churchill from the Shiites and the Sunnis in the middle and the Kurds at the top and various Christian communities, and at that stage, a very large Jewish community in Baghdad. Um, countries which do not, nations which do not have a history are in great danger, which may be why Iraq did not survive, although of course it was invaded by the Americans, and Syria has survived, not under the leader we would wish, but nonetheless. So although we may see something that looks static in today's terms, if we look at the, the, the thrust of history, um, this region is still evolving and it may take many decades more before we see the final shape. Look, I think the great danger to the region now, and we have to just say evolving, misses out something very important, and that is that um, we've seen in the last 20 years the, arri the arrival in the deserts and the cities of the Middle East of an Islamist cult the like of which we have not seen in hundreds of years. The Hashashin, the suicide killers of the Crusaders, have a faint, who came across the deserts from Persia and through Iraq, is faintly similar. But we've never seen any creature like ISIS before. Uh, even We even had the chairmen of the Joint Chief of Staff in Washington calling it apocalyptic. Um, I think that's, as usual with the Americans, a bit of an exaggeration. But um, it came from a lack of secular education. One of the things which was there in the Middle East Pretty much up until 50 or 40 years ago, when I arrived, 42 years ago in the Middle East, there was, a, there was a sound rock of secular education. You know, the Egyptians learned a lot from Napoleon and the British. They went to Paris, they learned French, they read Racine, Rousseau, um, they wanted to learn about European philosophers. And this humanist education has been lost, partly because dictators like um, Sisi, uh, Mubarak, Assad, father and son, have encouraged Islamism to put down nationalism, which may be against them. But partly because there has come into being a church, I'm talking not about Christian church, but an Islamist church, in which people are told everything is in the Quran. You need learn no more. And a very old friend of mine, a Palestinian whose family goes back to Jerusalem in the 12th century, Tarif al-Haladi, a very brave scholar from the American University of Beirut, just retired. He gave a lecture in Beirut, attended by a miserable 46 people, 45 without me, and his lecture was entitled, Does Islam Need a Martin Luther? Someone who'll rock it and ask questions. What he was trying to say, of course, is we've got to redefine what the Quran means. We can discuss what the Bible means, but because of this non-secular, in many cases, very ignorant teaching of Islam across the Middle East, you have people who will not question a word of the Quran. Everything is in the Quran. And as Tarif Halili says, but Beethoven isn't in the Quran anymore, it's in the Bible. Karl Marx is not in the Quran. By all means, it is an, an, an encouragement to learn. It is an invitation to study, as the Bible is. And, and, uh, and, and uh, the, 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 all the religious books of the Middle East but that does not mean they contain everything. We have to bring it into our age and live in it. And that is what has come off the rails. One of the thoughts that constantly uh, recurs is that perhaps we were better off with Saddam in place. Perhaps we should have let Assad at it. Uh, a stable country, a country that uh, appeared on the surface at any rate to respect 
all creeds and those with none. Very much on the surface. On the surface. Explain. Look, all dictators in the Middle East know that the minorities in their region rely upon them for their protection. The Christians relied upon Saddam. His foreign minister, Tariq Aziz, was a Christian. The Christians relied upon Hafez al-Assad to protect them from the Sunni Muslims, who may stage, as they did in the 30s, and they did in the 70s, another uprising against the regime. Um, in Egypt, the Copts are totally subservient to Sisi, the current field marshal president dictator. Because they're a minority, they need the government to defend them. And what happened is that they became, in the eyes of the Muslims, aligned with the regime. When Sisi gave his first public um, address after he staged the coup d'etat against the elected president, Mohamed Morsi, of which more later if you wish, but that's not the point, the Pope of the Coptic Church stood next to him in the official photograph. So that, as a, as a Muslim friend of mine said, who's Egyptian, he said, look, I've got lots of Christian friends, but since we saw that picture, anything that goes wrong under Sisi, I blame my Christian friends, because they stood with him. So if the dictator is all-powerful, as most people believe Saddam was, as he was for a long time, the Christians are safe. The Kurds were not prepared to accept that, and they suffered for it. Gassed by, you know, he gassed his own people, you know the story. Uh, albeit that the components of that gas came from the United States, which is another story. But the same happened in Syria. As long as the Christians didn't object to the regime, they were loved and treated and protected. But, but just tracking back a bit, mm. um, we see what happened post uh, the second uh, invasion of Iraq, the second Gulf War. We see what has happened now with the disintegration of Syria. We saw what happened in Libya. And you're kind of wondering whether or not if you weigh up those who were persecuted under Saddam, those who were persecuted under Assad, and you see what has happened since, the millions of people displaced in Syria, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who were killed in Iraq, the Iraq war caused devastation to a, not alone a, a country and a people, but a, a civilization. And you wonder, should we have tolerated what was there, even though it offended our sense of moral superiority in the West, because we might have anticipated the result of meddling. Look, we didn't enter any of these countries because we loved them. If the gross national export product of Iraq had been anchovies or, or lettuce, do you really believe the 82nd Airborne would have gone to Mosul? No. Um, uh, remember, when they got to Baghdad, we didn't know if the tanks were going to turn right to Iran or left to Damascus to Tehran or Damascus. Um, we, there's two things. We don't go to these Middle Eastern countries because we want to help them or give them democracy or because we love them. If we'd loved them, we'd have given them US and British passports when we arrived and said, we love you so much, you're, you're with us, We're, we love you. But that wasn't something that was going to commend itself. In fact, you couldn't even get enough refugees into America who'd worked with the Americans when they decided to depart. We went because of oil and we went for another reason, because empires and nations which want to show power must show it on the ground with military power. I was once south of Baghdad on Highway 82, a throat-cutting, horrible kidnap highway, and um, I, re I remember I was interviewing uh, some people who'd seen the murder of a poor Red Cross driver, who had his throat cut, here we go again, and the ground began to shake. And up the road came the biggest army I've ever seen in my life. The Americans were rotating their battalions and divisions in Iraq. For two hours, 
just thousands and thousands of American troops, helicopters overhead, tanks on transporters, came past me and the ground shook. And I think it was the first time I really understood that empires need to show their power. We can go to Samara, where civilization began, so we will. We can go to Baghdad, so we will. And we'll show the world how powerful we are. It's an illusion, of course. It didn't work. Um, should we, your original question, should we have left Saddam? We were quite content to do that for more than a decade. We didn't, you know, um, the Americans were in Baghdad um, pleading with Saddam to reopen the US embassy at a time when I was being deported for reporting mass hangings in Abu Ghraib's prison by Saddam's hangman. You know, I had strong so, views on this at the time. So we were prepared, uh, and I say we as the West, we're prepared to turn a blind eye to... We turn a blind eye to Sisi's uh, 20,000 political prisoners now. We turn a blind eye, in fact, we supply weapons, and Britain does, to Saudi Arabia, even though it's destroying Yemen. Um, it's only when the particular dictators don't do what we want them to do that we decide that they're horrific Hitler figures and Mussolini, we bring up the Second World War. We loved Saddam when he invaded Iran, but we decided it wasn't good enough when he invaded Kuwait, which was our ally, so we had to biff him. And that's what we do to dictators. We slap them if they don't do what we want them to do, and we love them always. However, I mean, you can believe the conspiracy theories which say that this is all about selling weapons. It's all about... Uh, no, it's about oil primarily. Weapons are gold. oil and all of that. But when you see the cock-up that was, has been made, um, if we're meddling in Syria, Syria is a mess. We meddled in Iraq. Iraq is a mess. Was it a cock-up, Pat? Was it really a cock-up? Well, or did so. we intend to destroy the strength of these countries in order to make the world safe for Israel or for us? Was that the intention? Is that a, not a conspiracy theory too far? Tony, I mean that they Tony Blair for used example, conspiracy they fired, they fired all the police force in, in Iraq as soon as they arrived and didn't put anything in its place. Instead of doing what was required at the time, which is get the hospitals open, get uh, electric power generation Offer US sorted, all of these things would have sorted a lot of the animosity towards the invading force. But when the Americans went into Baghdad, they only put an armed force on one ministry, the oil ministry, because they knew what would happen if the oil ministry was destroyed. Education, Islamic libraries, the Quranic library in Baghdad went up in flames. And it was Iraqis and perhaps Kuwaitis, but certainly Iraqis who did that. But the oil ministry they looked after, they knew that they had to protect the oil ministry. Look, go back to Iran in the 50s. They had the first democratically elected prime minister, Mossadegh. And we know, and it's on record, and I've spoken to the guy who now dead of MI5 who arranged it, that the MI5 and the CIA engineered with money and weapons the overthrow of Mossadegh and they brought back the Shah. Now, that was a real conspiracy and it actually happened. And I agree with you, not everything, you know, there is a cock-up theory of history too, but when you see a conspiracy on that scale, just because it happened when I was a little boy and you were too and we don't remember it, does not mean that it couldn't happen again. It doesn't mean that we've become nicer since those days. But when you look at uh, the mess that is Libya, um, something that you would have thought that the Arab Spring might have been quite efficient in Libya, make it happen, uh, even if you had a, a federation at the end of it of two Libyas in, no, under Lib one flag. No, Libya didn't have a history. It was Tripolitanian Cyrenaica. And the Italian colonization, which was extremely brutal, had, had done for that. Again, we interfered in a country in which we had no interest, no understanding of the history, particularly the tribal history. If you go back to uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, 
founder of the Turkish nation, when he was a young soldier before the First World War, he was writing to his opposite number in Bosnia, a fellow officer, saying, we can't deal with the Libyans, they're not a nation, they're a tribes. You see, so the history was there, but we don't read history. Talk to me about the Syria of the Assad family, the father and son, and how you would characterize uh, what appeared on the face of it to be stability, and what provoked uh, the attempt to usurp Assad's power. What did they want him to change? Oh, I think, um, first of all, uh, most of the Middle East at various stages has lived under dictatorships because partly I fear we as the colonial powers didn't want to teach people what democracy really meant. We introduced a parliament to Egypt, for example, under British rule, and the first debate was about independence from Britain, so we closed down the parliament. <laughs> it wasn't what we wanted. Like, we don't pay attention to elections if they're really in Gaza and the wrong people get elected. So we produced nations in which we preferred to have dictators. When, after Winston Churchill created Iraq, for example, he brought in an Arabian Sunni Muslim to rule as the king of a Shiite country. The majority of people in, in Iraq are Shiites. The British held a referendum. Would the Iraqi people like to say whether they wanted this king? And the result was 96.78%. Exactly the same as Mubarak gets, or Saddam gets. Saddam got 100%. Um, what was the last election for Hafez al-Assad? 98%. I think it was the same for Bashar. They actually want to play this democratic fantasy. There might be a man in the White House who does this now, but we're not talking about him. Thank we God. will. <laughs> I fear so, I fear so. I'm not Tony Blair, though. Um, but uh, we helped to start this dictatorship. We like dictators. They will control their own people. Do you remember what Mubarak used to say? If you get rid of me, it'll become an Islamic madhouse. And now, of course, he can say it again, can't he? And Sisi can say it. And Bashar al-Assad can say it. Hafez al-Assad was a typical lackey of outside powers. He was brutal. The Americans went along with that. When uh, Syrian forces entered Lebanon in 1976, June the 6th, they chose a fatal day, the Americans said fine, and the Israelis didn't mind as long as they didn't come too far south in Lebanon. They were very happy for Syria to extend its rule and keep control of Lebanon. Control is what, why we support dictatorships. We don't want these Islamic guys or these nationalists or these Palestinians upsetting what we want to happen there. The funny thing about Hafez al-Assad, he was a ruthless, brutal dictator. He had a police in Mohabarat headquarters which had more floors underground than above ground, built by the East Germans when it was the German Democratic Republic. They had a chair upon which people were tortured. The East Germans brought it in and slowly it bent your back until your backbone cracked. Uh, the Syrians then invented their own Damascus chair, which broke your backbone more slowly. Um, but I have to add, and this is a terrifying thing to say, if you flew from, say, Paris or London to Damascus, you knew you were in a brutal dictatorship. When you flew from London to Baghdad under Saddam Hussein, it was an even more brutal dictatorship. If you traveled, as I did occasionally, from Baghdad to Damascus, Arriving in Syria was like thinking you were in a liberal democracy compared to Saddam. But the, the, the impression was given that here you had a society where education was cherished, uh, where secularism was appreciated and in fact uh, was uh, a, a dominant uh, element in certainly Damascus society. Is that a fair 
description. Bath, Bath Party policy would tell you it was a fair description. But clearly minorities like the Alawites from which the Assads come, which is a Shiite uh, religion, were favoured, got special jobs, the family was given special jobs inside the regime, which of course made the Sunnis feel that it wasn't their country. But then both Assads decided to exalt the middle classes and the merchants of the Sunni regime, so they kept a large number of Sunnis within... On side. On side. And that included the army, which was a big employer. I mean, even now, when I go to Syria you know, regularly every month, um, I, on, on one particular trip, I went round and checked at every checkpoint, not with great pleasure from the Syrian regime, of what the religions of the soldiers were. And in one critical area of Damascus, it was 82% Sunni Muslim. The people who, in theory, should be destroying the regime were actually making up the bulk of the army. So what had happened by that stage is that people were more frightened of what might come than what they'd had before. Two small things that are worth keeping in mind here. The first is that I think what brought down the chaos upon the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad was not repression, which was an ordinary part of that country. It was the fact that due partly to stupid government agricultural policies and a massive drought, a large number of unemployed, young, uneducated, Islamist educated, but not with a humanitarian, humanist education, poured, penniless, or Syrian poundless, into the big suburbs surrounding Aleppo, which is the largest city in Syria, bigger than Damascus, and Damascus, and the other big cities, which is why it was in the suburbs of Aleppo that the revolution began, and in the suburbs of Damascus, which is why the center of So Damascus. these were disaffected, impoverished people. Exactly, exactly. Now, into this, the Turks were involved in trying to bring down the regime for various reasons, which if we have time, we can talk about it. So were other people. Um, there was a critical moment when um, the revolution against Bashar went wrong. I'm still trying to find out what happened at that critical moment. We know, and I witnessed in northeastern Lebanon, that there were armed men fighting the regime from the start. But at the beginning of the revolution against Bashar, it was largely unarmed, peaceful civilians in their tens of thousands who were in the streets. This was the case particularly in the city of Homs, which is the first city north of Damascus when you drive up the international highway. By the way, was this, uh, if you like, homegrown revolution or was it copycat Arab Spring? I think there was a certain element of saying, quite frankly, well, look, we are Syrians, we are brave people. If they can have a revolution, we've got to be courageous enough to have these changes here. Why should we be left out? It wasn't copycat suggests that, oh, you know, well, let's do what they do. I think the Syrians have got a little bit more brain than that. But what happened was that when, a f after a few months, this had gone on, Assad was saying, well, I'll talk to the opposition. And, of course, the opposition said, no, all you want to talk to is your tame opposition, whom some of them are not prepared to talk to. But these are the people who... But do, do you believe there was a moment when he could have contained it? If he had made concessions... Um... Uh, I, I, th I think probably yes, but he, he wasn't up to it. You know, he, is, he has a lot to answer for, for this revolution, which has become such a bloodbath. But there was a critical moment when the American and French ambassadors drove up to Homs and spoke to the tens of thousands of demonstrators, peaceful demonstrators, against Assad. And when they met their leadership, both ambassadors said, don't talk to Assad. He's about to fall. Don't talk to him. You'll have a free country. And the opposition, who were not at that stage holding thousands of weapons, they were not ISIS, 
They said, right. And then all the Western ambassadors left Damascus. And Assad did not fall because he had the army. And that meant that all links between the opposition and the regime were finished. So meddling again. I fear so. I think that that trip up to Homs was a most important historical, terrifying moment. Now, that doesn't excuse the regime's barbaric acts of shooting down demonstrators. Later, that changed. What I don't know is what happened in the critical months following that advice from the, the French and the Americans, when suddenly this peaceful opposition, with its eloquence and its social media, suddenly became overwhelmed by the cultists. Al-Qaeda arrived, and they called themselves Nusra. Daesh, ISIS arrived. Many other Islamist groups, funded, as we know, by Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, etc. Who were they armed by? Who was arming them? By now, every foreign country I can think of in the region, plus the West, was all involved in the Syrian war. What happened at that critical moment when the opposition en masse suddenly disappeared? It was the same moment when my colleagues who were with the rebels I was reporting from the front line where the government was, and my colleague on The Independent was reporting from the rebel lines in Aleppo. They suddenly all left because ISIS decided that journalists should have their throats cut and their heads would be taken off their bodies on videotape, which is why I couldn't report from the other side. To, to what extent were they refugees from uh, the Iraqi war? In other words, they were looking for a new front, and Syria was the front. ISIS was created by the American, Anglo-American invasion of Iraq. It began in Iraq. It began, obviously, 2014, we saw it in Mosul, but before that, it was in Fallujah. I can remember very shortly after the American invasion seeing the most terrifying corpses brought to the mortuaries in Baghdad, with heads chopped off, in one case, a, a head of a dog sewn onto a body, um, uh, you know, things that you really can only describe in, 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 in the pages of a medical journal. But something had gone terribly wrong. We're used to knowing, you know, Islamists, yes, nationalists, but it, it was way out in the desert. There were no roadways here. I went to a, a mosque in Fallujah when I could still go in there, and there were piles of VHS, no DVDs in those days, and I bought a lot of them, took them back to Baghdad, put them in, in the player, and they were all of young Caucasian men having, having their heads cut off. Only by seeing the blue and white pullovers they were wearing did I realize they were Russian soldiers. And the bearded men behind them were obviously Chechen Muslims. Who sent these videotapes to Fallujah? Obviously the Chechens did to teach the Iraqis how to be butchers, how to cut off heads. You stood behind and you did that. This is when ISIS began. This also brings us to Mr. Putin. Ah. President Putin, who is one of the key actors in uh, the whole Syrian a misadventure. Actors, uh, and dominating there are a of figures. Actors, and we'll talk about them. But um, his antipathy to the Chechens is um, legendary, I suppose. So, is that the reason why he's so active in Syria? Besides, obviously, the importance of having a Mediterranean uh, seaport and all of that. Look, I read by all these expert mountebanks in various institutes of preposterous affairs in New York who appear on CNN and Fox News and occasionally the BBC, that you know, Russia was humiliated by the fact that it lost its Libyan ports of Tripoli and Benghazi and let NATO take over and look what happened. Uh, it was fearful that it would lose its only warm water port left, which was Tartus in Syria. Now it's got the Hermamin air base as well. Um, I don't think primarily that's what Putin was worried about. You know, in, in modern 
naval power. Having a fleet in the Black Sea doesn't take very long to get it into the eastern Mediterranean. The Turks weren't going to interfere with it. I think Putin was genuinely outraged by Islam itself. The Chechen War was finished by the Second Chechen War, in which he totally er erased Grozny effectively from the map. He didn't care. Women, children, hospitals, nothing. And if you're in Moscow, and very occasionally I go there, the Middle East, Damascus is not in the Middle East, it is due south. If you look at Chechen, just beyond, you see the minarets of Damascus. And over and over again, before he involved the military of the Russian Federation in Syria, Putin kept saying the Chechens are in Syria. They fled into Syria. They're going to attack us there. And I remember being at a Syrian army artillery base in the far north near the Turkish border. All but one of them were later immolated in an attack by Nusra. They were all died, but I saw them just before. And <coughs> they were naming with film, which they had taken of various attacks, different Chechen leaders of the ISIS and Nusra forces. In fact, the man who drove the suicide vehicle into their base and killed them all after, not long after I'd interviewed them, he was the Chechen himself. So, so from Putin's point of view, if Assad's regime was to collapse and be taken over by uh, some sort of um, combination of ISIS and others. They'd be in Beirut within a day as well. They'd be in Lebanon too, if that happened. If that happened, um, he would not stand idly by. Um, yeah, that's a phrase from World War II, which I try to avoid. Um, it's difficult. Look, Putin had realized that Obama was a weak man, and much more importantly, he knows that Trump is, should be in a lunatic asylum. Uh, I've said on your program, Pat, that Trump is mad, he's crackers, uh, he needs medical help, and he should not be in the White House. Uh, at the time, you asked me if I, if I had a doctor's training to know that, and I pointed out to you that if I'd said he was sane, you wouldn't ask me that question. But he is mad, and that's the problem. People say, oh, what is the Trump foreign policy? There is no foreign policy. The guy's cracked. You know, he, he needs medical help. That's the problem. And Putin, who understands madness very well, Russian literature is full of studies of madness, Dostoevsky, he said, okay, we can take advantage of this. And Putin had a policy which was utterly amoral, Trump is amoral but doesn't know it because he's narcissistic. Putin knows he's amoral and doesn't mind. By the way, the anti-Islamic thing is very interesting. He sometimes makes comments about Muslims in press conferences which are not translated from Russian into English or French. He made one comment in Paris where he turned very, very coldly and said, if these Muslim, uh, Muslims in Chechnya or in the Middle East who are Islamists want to come to Moscow, we have good doctors to castrate them. That was not translated. A Russian came over and told me what he said because you know I'd want it. Um, so you have a man who has a, who has a darker view of Islam even than the Sisi's and the Assads have. Do you know where that is rooted, by the way, where it comes from in Putin's own past? I mean, was it when he was in the KGB? <sighs> I don't know. Look, um, I, I, I can study Putin in the Middle East. Don't ask me about Moscow. His, his senior officer in Dresden, when he was a KGB officer in Dresden, said that he used to take risks without reflecting on the consequences. Well, I would say that also applies to George W. Bush and Tony Blair <laughs> and uh, Cameron in Libya and Sarkozy and so on. I think the point is that um, Putin has realized that in the vast area, the, the, the air has been emptied by Trump's madness. So he has gone after everybody. He's a friend of Netanyahu. He calls Lieberman, who's the racist foreign minister of Israel, a great Russian because he came from 
Soviet Union originally. Uh, he's good friends with Rouhani, the president of Iran. He goes to Cairo and Sisi takes him to the Cairo Opera to watch Verdi. Turkey shoots down a Russian aircraft and effectively Putin destroys the tourist trade of Turkey by saying no Russians can go there. And within a few days, Erdogan is his friend and he's going to visit on a state visit to Istanbul to see Erdogan. Uh, we were there when, when he came and there was a huge Russian helicopter carrier parked just opposite the Topkapi Palace in the Bosphorus, right down from the hotel window. You knew what he was saying, don't mess with us. And so everybody, everybody needs Putin. Something happens in the Middle East, nobody says, oh, what is Washington going to say? They want to know what Putin's going to say. But who are the people whom Putin has not supported in the Middle East? One, the Kurds, and two, the Palestinians. And they're the two people who don't have a nation and should have a nation. And also, if you support Israel, you can't support the Palestinians. That's for sure. Well, you can also if you say if you, if no. you support Erdogan, you yes. can't support the Kurds. Well, you can also say if you're going to support the Israelis, you can't support the Syrians. But he does. The large-scale Russian military offensive in the world, the only one, is in Syria. And, you know, I don't think uh, Putin particularly likes Bashar al-Assad. But there's one thing Putin does like, and that's people who don't run away. Remember, the Ukrainian president ran away. He disappeared into Russia, and we've never seen him again. Putin just disappeared. But Bashar did not run away from Damascus. Is it a and problem? Putin appreciates that. Is it a problem for us that we, we don't view all of these events through anything other than a Western prison? We, we still have this idea that the United States is the country that defines the, the moral compass of, of uh, the world, that the Russians are the bad guys, uh, that we don't see the world, we can't make ourselves see the world through Putin's eyes. You're partly right. Our problem in the West is that we believe, probably from literature rather than cinema, that there are good guys and bad guys. Not a bad idea. There have been bad guys. I mean, the most evil dictator of our generation was Hitler. And we, thank God, destroyed Hitler. The West did. Uh, with American help, <laughs> but particularly with Russian help, remember. But the problem is that we apply the good, by, good guy, bad guy thing to people in the Middle East. And when we select a bad guy, Saddam, Hafez al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad, um, Nasser at one point, Eden, Anthony Eden called Nasser the Mussolini of the Middle East, you see the same thing again. We decide that they will go, they're going to be destroyed because they're bad. And the Middle East proves to you that if you're bad, you're not necessarily going to be destroyed. And it should prove to us two things. One, that we will not necessarily win because we identify various figures as Hitlers, even though there is indeed a likeness, though a pale one compared to Hitler. It also suggests that we should not have our soldiers and our tanks and our guns and our air forces and our navies in the Middle East. Fifteen years ago, when I was um, writing a story for, alas, the now defunct Independent on Sunday, I calculated that we had more military personnel in the Middle East than the Crusaders had in the 12th century. Why? By all means, give them vast gifts to set up universities, humanist universities, fine architecture, rebuild their cities as wondrous places, but no more soldiers. No more tanks, no more guns, no more aircraft, please. That doesn't mean the dictators won't stay, but it will mean that there will be a new generation that says, we've got to do this ourselves. 
Because anyway, we're only going to betray them, as we have always. Um, looking back to the Cold War, when you had that balance of power between the, the, what we thought was the might of the Soviet Empire, which was crumbling within, uh, and the United States, admittedly we had proxy wars all over the, the, the globe. Um, the Americans trying to stop the domino theory happening in uh, South and Central America and so on and so forth. But in spite of the, the nuclear arsenals that both possessed, and they still do possess large arsenals which have been off the, 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 the agenda really until a certain North Korean gent uh, brought nuclear back into the frame big but time. But not Iran, interestingly enough. Hmm? Not Iran, they don't have nuclear weapons. No, they the don't, and, and we can talk about the Iran nuclear deal in a moment. But that, uh, that standoff, if you like, between two mighty powers, in a funny kind of way, seemed to make the world a less violent and perhaps safer place. Did it? Um, didn't stop the 1948 war, didn't stop the 1967 Middle East war, didn't stop the 1973 Middle East war, didn't stop the Israeli but, invasion but the, the, of Lebanon I mean, the 1967 war was what, six-day war? Six days? Yeah, 73 was a lot more serious. It lasted much longer. But still relatively short. 82, invasion of Lebanon, 17,000 dead, lasted for three months. The Palestinians appealed to Brezhnev to drop them weapons, and he declined and said, but we send you our goodwill. I'm not sure that the Cold War protected people. Look at, look at, look at the, the battles that went on in Angola and Mozambique. Look at Rhodesia, as it were, then was, Zimbabwe now, although here again we're not going too deep into that. But, you know, um, I don't think it was... Look at the Korean War, for heaven's sakes. And that's what we're still dealing with. That's why Trump made this crazed journey to... Uh, to see the, the rocket man. I wanted it? to ask you something about the arming of the rebels in Syria, because we know the Russians are arming uh, the, the, the Assad army. And how. They've given them new anti-armor weapons that allow them to fire at suicide tanks far enough away not to be blown up by the suicide bomb in the tank. So the Russians and the airstrikes, which I've witnessed with my own eyes in front of me, are devastating. So who's the Syrian the army side? could not have advanced, and Bashar would not can control, in quotes, 60% of Syria without the Russians. So who's arming the other side? Aha. Well, when Aleppo fell back into the hands of the Syrian army in December of 2016, I went rummaging around without a minder in basements of bombed Al-Qaeda and ISIS headquarters, and I came away with a lot of documents. And in the course of the next few weeks, I'm going to ex-Yugoslavia, reason for that in a second, to find out how they got their weapons. Now, I'll give you an example. The stuff I was picking up. Here, for example, is a document, explosives. It's very clear to see that's explosives. This is cartridges for weapons with a bursting charge, country of origin, Bulgaria, caliber 115 millimeters, total number of pieces, 1,200. This was a shipment, six boxes in this one. That obviously left Bulgaria. More interesting are these two pamphlets, which come from the Zashtava car factory in Kraguyevac, which is um, south of Belgrade. I know this town quite well because in the NATO war of Serbia, uh, the Americans fired cruise missiles at it, and I went and had a look at it. These I've picked up on the floor of a basement next to lots of weapons inside uh, a basement in eastern Aleppo. Zastava Arms, address, Kosovska Ulitsa 4, 34-00 Kraguyevac, Serbia. So I'm going to pay a visit to these people to find out if they can perhaps tell me what they ship. Now, what's important, I must add this, these are not smuggled weapons that were picked up individually by armed smugglers. These came in lots, batches, which you cannot sell to Al-Qaeda. You have to sell them 
to a nation, presumably in the region, which will give you what is called an end-user certificate. In other words, the country, in the Gulf I suspect, says we need these weapons, they're going to be for our use and for our military forces. So these factories received from the people with the end-user certificate permission to send them, we're going to put these so, weapons in our army. So who is the middle man? Which is well, the middle nation? Which is the nation receiving them? Yeah. I mean, look at the stuff I've got here. Firing tables. Um, this is another Yugoslav firing table, so the 120 millimeter light mortar. Um, I even have here, for example, this is one we are getting. This is a weapon logbook from a company in Novi, um, Novi Travnik in Bosnia. It's about 40, 35 kilometers from Sarajevo. This is for also for a mortar 120. What's interesting about this, the company is called BTM, is that it actually gives the date of manufacture 2016. So it was actually being manufactured only nine months before it was in the hands of people in Aleppo. We've got the condition PKP 107190. Very interestingly, it was signed off out of the factory on the 15th of January 2016, and we even have here the name of the Bosnian Muslim, Ifet Vrnjic, who signed it off on its way to which country? Well, will it be Saudi Arabia? Very possible. Qatar? Maybe. Uh, Qatar supports Nusra, Al-Qaeda. Saudi Arabia has given, well, a lot of Saudis have given a lot of money to uh, ISIS. What did it have been Kuwait? Unlikely. Yemen? Impossible. Oman? No. United Arab Emirates? Conceivable. But my journey to ex-Yugoslavia is to find out who they sold these batches of weapons to. It's important because, for example, I found a huge heap of um, anti-armor uh, weapon boxes in one basement, Nusra again, which is Al-Qaeda. And they were all originally made by the Hughes Aircraft Corporation of California. I had the stock number, 14101300254, and each box was consecutively numbered with the next sequential computer number. This was not smuggled. This was an armed shipment that left the United States. I'm trying to find out where that shipment went to. And only by using documents and files, not rhetoric or experts on TV, will we find out where did those guns go. Because they clearly went to Eastern Aleppo, and that's where I found all this stuff. Yeah. What is kind of almost amusing to me, and if I'd thought about it, I probably would have expected it, but you have these uh, documents here, the brochure, really, of the, the weapon, and it's almost like the brochure to a microwave oven. <laughs> you know, when you get not a new only, microwave, not only you have that, to learn how to work it. And there's your the microwave oven mortar instructions. <laughs> In fact, some of, these, some of these books actually give you um, how to ship weapons, and they show you can even ship them over mountains in, on donkeys, and how to load the donkeys, and how not to touch them. Uh, this, I think, comes from uh, Serbia, not from Bosnia, but I will find out when I get there, because interestingly, it has no name on it. It's all in English, slightly flawed English, so someone translated it. As for official, I love that. Everything is official. <laughs> um, you know, your access to uh, areas within Syria, I mean, you're critics, and there are a few around. Say, I hope so. You know, he is one of those people who's, who, who cozies up to the regime. Otherwise, he could not possibly get access to the front line to talk to Syrian soldiers. What do you say to those critics? Well, I say, first of all, that wherever I've covered a war, uh, in the north, when I spoke to the IRA, I was pro-IRA and anti-British. When I was covering Portugal, I was always with the revolutionaries against the Caetano regime. When I've covered the Palestinians, I'm always pro-terrorist in the eyes of the Israelis. When I've covered the Iran-Iraq war, the Americans said I was pro-Saddam. In fact, um, one very senior member of the Bush administration said that live on air to me. And of course, if I'm covering Syria, I'm going to be 
pro-Assad or paid by Assad or a member of Mossad or the Syrian Secret Service. The fact is that when you get involved in a civil war and you're reporting it, a group of people will always pop up to say, you're lying. And the purpose of doing that is to abuse you and to not elicit the truth, but to inhibit you from telling the truth. I don't have a minder in Syria. The reason I'm allowed to move around is after 42 years in the Middle East, the Syrians know I'm not a spy. If I have to go to Kamishli, for example, as I did, which is totally cut off, but there were Syrian troops there, they said, all right, go and get an aircraft, good luck. The reason is not because the Syrian regime is particularly nice, of course, it's also because if I get killed, they can say, well, we didn't have a minder with him, he was on his own. You know, there's always a second reason for things happening in Syria. But obviously, over the period, I've got to know almost every unit in the Syrian army, and this is interesting and it's important because when this war really is over, I think it will be the Syrian army who will decide the future of Syria. It doesn't mean they're going to overthrow Bashar, but it's going to be a, a different kind of Syria because the Syrian army have a state secret. How many Syrian soldiers have been killed? It's about 87,000, and that comes from the army. That's a real figure. Think how many families in Syria, mostly Muslim, have lost their relatives after 87,000 dead. That's not counting wounded people without legs and so on. These people are going to want to have a say in the new Syria, which is one reason I suspect why the Assad regime has now introduced a new law number 10, which I wrote about at great length a couple of weeks ago. This effectively says that if you want to register your house, you must do it quickly. You must go through the security apparatus, otherwise the house will become the property of the government and we shall own it and rebuild it. Thus, of course, destroying the hope of refugees who are against the regime of returning. Now the Syrians, having been condemned internationally, including by me in the Independent, I said, oh, well, it, it, you know, we'll, we'll give them a year to come back and they won't have to go through the Syrian um, uh, intelligence services to register their property. Well, as a Syrian friend of mine said to me in Beirut only a few days ago, we have to register the security authorities when we want to sell our car. Do you really think they're going to be able to get their property back without going through security? But if, if this is a possibly optimistic view of where Syria will go... Law number 10 is not. It's a very pessimistic view. I was wondering, because yeah. we're looking at if, if al-Sisi in Egypt comes from the army and therefore controls the army, or is controlled by the army, who knows how the, those senior relationships uh, exist. What happens then in, in Syria if the army takes over? If they restore order while keeping Assad as a figurehead, but That's the real partly, power... But I'm not sure it'll be quite like that. You see, often when I've, I'm talking, and, and they let ordinary soldiers sit in the room, you know, captains and corporals. It's interesting that the, the generals are always in the front line when I interview them, not in shadows behind the lines. Some are in Latakia, but not all. Um, what's interesting is at the end they said, okay, Mr. Robert, you tell us what you think the situation is. So I say, do you want Gazeb Kabir? Do you want a big lie? Or do you want Al-Hakika, the truth? Hakika, you say they want the truth. I say, oh, you're not gonna like it. You sure? Yes. So I say, you are stained and contaminated by the brutality of your intelligence services. And that is exactly the reaction I get. Not, a, not a absolute pin drop cliche, you know? And then they'll do this. They know, you see. There have been some cases of Mahabharat officers actually being arrested by the army, but not enough. I've seen the army cave in to Mahabharat thugs on the Turkish border when they suddenly came out of the old Syrian um, uh, customs post, immigration post, and tell the army to get me out, and the army were humiliated by this. 
This, we're talking about the general here. So this is not a battle that's been won. The latest that I have heard in Damascus when I came out some days ago is that the Mohabharat will be transferred from its own institutions into the Ministry of Interior. That sounds sinister, but given how the Ministry of Interior is run means that a lot of their powers may be, they may be declawed to some extent. But that will not solve the problem. Um, I want to talk Trump and uh, what Trump has done to America's position in the world. I mean, the Iran deal, which uh, Obama uh, negotiated with some opposition from Republicans and so on, but the deal was signed with Europe and with Iran. And they didn't have any weapons. They were talking about uh, enriching uranium. They were a long way, it would appear, from having a weapon. If they were close to, one imagines that the Israelis would take it out anyway. They would destroy whatever facility if they were on the brink of developing a nuclear The Israelis weapon. are not quite capable of doing all they say. They might not have been able to do it. It might have been in their interest, despite Netanyahu, to actually let this go through and see how it goes. But the most important statement the Iranians have made since this was not you know, how disappointed they are, how Europe's got to keep it going. It's their advice to the little rocket man of North Korea after he was promised a, an agreement with Trump. The Iranians said, watch out. Think of what happened to us. And that is the most destructive thing anyone has said about that meeting between Trump and the North Koreans. The, the, what, what Trump is all about, I mean, he calls himself a deal-maker, the, the, the best deal-maker in the world that, that the world has ever seen. But in terms of what he's doing, dismantling the State Department, maybe there were too many uh, diplomats employed in the State Department, maybe not, um, reneging on deals, which if they have to be put back in place, if NAFTA collapses the North American Free Trade Agreement, all of these things he wants to dismantle. He wants to erect a wall and you feel if he does build it, that it will be very slow in coming down. So to, to rectify what Trump might do in four or eight years, and where You mean post-Trump? Yeah, yeah, like what, what state will Trump leave America's position in the world in when he's done with it? Look, what Trump has done is in many ways produced a Europe that realizes at last that America is an unreliable ally. I don't think the Europeans are strong enough, look at Bosnia for heaven's sakes, to actually have the unity and never mind the right wing in Austria and Eastern Europe and Central Europe. I don't think the EU is up to this, but there has, in the most powerful nations of the EU, particularly Germany and France, become a realisation that no longer can they rely on the United States and that is not going to go away with a new president. And this applies to Iran, it applies to the Middle East in general. Heaven knows why the Arabs still saying, we want the Europeans to sort out the Palestinian problem. Forget it. The Europeans created the Palestinian problem with Balfour. But it is creating a world in which people no longer take America seriously. And that's the point. And when you don't take a country seriously, it doesn't matter how many weapons it's got, how many tanks it's got, it's pretty much finished on the international arena. Earlier on, at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about uh, uh, empires have to show their power. And when you look at, uh, over the, the last 50 years, various Am American presidents have had their wars, uh, perhaps to demonstrate their power. I mean, America is always at war. It's pretty much continuously at war. Because mm, uh, it wants to prove its empiredom. Yeah. So where will Trump's war be? Because he's obviously backing out of involvement in uh, Syria. Uh, he's left that playing pitch to Putin, more or less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And to Assad, of course. And Assad. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so where will his war be? 
I don't think America's power comes from wars, which they usually end up as a mess, with the exception of World War I and World War II. I think it comes from the dollar. It's the economy. Every country, every empire that wants to show its power wants to show its financial power. I'll give you a very devious example of this. ISIS in Mosul decided it would create its own currency. It would have gold coins, silver coins, and copper coins. But there will be real copper, real silver, real gold. My last trip to Damascus, I got hold of, um, uh, I got hold of two coins minted by ISIS in Mosul. Here is the copper one, 25 filths, which would be uh, one quarter of a dirham. It's in copper, and it, it's heavy. Feel it. That's the real copper. That's not diminished coinage. Any of the people old enough to remember the old penny, when there were 240 of them to the pound? It's yeah. about that size. Well, the Roman sesterce was actually what it was worth in silver. This is the silver coin in real silver for, five, for two dirhams, which is worth eight times the copper. And it's real. That's real silver. But it's interesting to reflect what happened to the currency when it started floating around. You see, we have a currency, we're an empire, we're a caliphate. The copper was used by the people in the bazaars to weigh other coins. And the silver was, min, 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 was melted down to buy um, US currency, the dollar one. You see, when I realized that, I thought, I don't think ISIS is gonna cut it. It's about the economy. ISIS could not create an economy. In the end, they were using Syrian notes with Assad's head on. That meant the end. They didn't end the Sykes-Picot agreement. They didn't change the frontier. I, I suspect I want them back, these the are now worth far more than their face value. They are if they're in that envelope, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually showed this as a, to a group of 100 investors in London, and since I regard all investors and asset managers as criminals, I say I'm watching each one of you as it goes round. But no, I mean, I think that if you can't create an economy, you ain't going to be an empire. And the Syrian economy is broke, but it has Russia, it has the potential of new oil, and I think it's getting a lot of money from other countries. And I think the country that will rescue Syria is going to be Qatar. The oil state that's funded Al-Qaeda to destroy Syria will rebuild it. There are lots of connections between Assad, Bashar al-Assad and the Qatari Emir. That's why the Saudis have turned against them. That's why Trump, if he has any idea what he's doing, turned against Qatar. Because Qatar has liquid gas, very, very expensive to export. It has oil. It has Al Jazeera. But it's like the British Empire without India. It has no land. You know, Qatar is smaller than uh, Dublin City Council. But if it gets Syria and controls Syria by rebuilding it with its billions, it has land and a vital trade route through the Middle East. Even what far four years ago, when nuns were released by Al-Qaeda, they got a million dollar per nun to release each of the 11 nuns, the most expensive nuns in the world, I would think. They were traded back via Lebanon and returned to Damascus, where they thanked the Emir of Qatar and President Bashar al-Assad and the Lebanese authorities, because the head of the general security in Lebanon is a man called Abbas Ibrahim, and he's the middleman between Qatar and the Syrians. The previous emir, the father of the present emir, had a palace being built outside Damascus. It's still under construction in theory, but it hasn't been touched. It's still there. He'll come back at some point. 
The more you talk, the more I realise how little I know about all of this. No, but believe me, Pat, the longer I stay in the Middle East, the less I understand. <laughs> so. All right. um, we'll invite questions if anyone in our, our audience here would like to uh, ask Robert a question. We'll get a microphone to uh, anyone whose hand is raised. Thank you, and thank you, Robert. Very interesting uh, pre presentation. You haven't mentioned the Palestinians in, to any great degree. How do you see the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict ending? Um, I don't think it's going to end soon. Um, no, the, it's instructive that I didn't really talk about the Palestinians because the Syrian war, and I suppose the Yemen war, which we really don't care very much about, though we should, has effectively, and it's a great tragedy, pushed the Palestinians out. They had to have 130 dead in Gaza in two weeks, 52 of them in one day, to get back into our headlines. And the situation in Gaza continues to get worse. And there's no doubt that the two-state solution is out. In my view, there's not going to be two states. If you actually go to the West Bank, and I'll be going back there in September, you'll find that it is impossible to have a single state in the West Bank alone. There are so many settlements, so many settlement roads. The Israelis control the border with Jordan that you cannot create a nation there. There will not be a Palestine. When I write about Palestine, the independent, I put it in quotation marks, much to the fury of a lot of Palestinians. Um, I was talking only a few days ago in the Shatila camp, infamous from the Sabra Shatila massacre of 1982. Old man of my age, young man of my age, I should say, uh, and he was born in Lebanon just after the creation of the State of Israel. And I said, what was the mistake the Palestinians made? He said, in 47 and 48, we should not have left, we should have stayed. Even if we died, we should have stayed. But 750,000 left, and their children and grandchildren now are four to five million, and they're all refugees. And I said, do you think you're gonna go back to Israel? Yes, I'm gonna return. I don't believe it. I think the Palestinians are the new Kurds. They're going to be, they've been betrayed, they're born to be betrayed, and they will not come back. The only thing you can say about the Palestinians, and this was Amir Ahas, the great Israeli journalist who lives in Ramallah, the only Israeli journalist to live in the West Bank. She said to me, you know, whatever happens to the Palestinians, they won't leave, they won't go, they continue to stay on their land and they hang on to it. And that was her way of saying, I think, uh, they've not lost. But I rather fear they have. I think that Israel, even if it becomes an apartheid state, which it must if it makes all of the West Bank into the state of Israel, because it cannot give a vote to the Arabs, um, if that happens in the current world circumstances and given the continued, forget about Trump, constant United States support for Israel, whatever it does, whoever it kills, whoever it invades, I don't see a change and I don't see any hope coming for the Palestinians. And, and uh, uh, you know, Mrs. May last year was honouring the brilliance of the Balfour Declaration on the 100th anniversary, uh, my own beloved Prime Minister. Another question there. Uh, Robert, uh, you said something I profoundly agree with you when you said that... Uh, law... Disagree or agree? Agree. agree. You're a man of judgment and sensitivity. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, you said law number 10 is definitely a very bad thing where Assad is attempting to seize the homes of all of the refugees and frankly all of those who fled their homes who invariably were from opposition areas, which effectively means millions of people. Can I just put it to you that really law number 10 might help you 
perhaps because you said you had some doubts about the revolution in understanding the nature of the policies of the Assad regime. Because I put it to you, because I've done quite a lot of research into this, and it seems to me that from the very beginning, when Assad, as you've said, began gunning down peaceful demonstrators day after day, and we were all very surprised mm. people went into the street in Syria, you too, I'm sure, because of the reputation of the Mukbarat and the regime for eliminating opponents, but kept coming to the street as they were gunned down. And that strategy has carried on with the relentless bombing by, with the Russians of opposition areas, with the whole emphasis always on getting people to flee, to almost clear the country of opposition. And I was a little surprised, and I want to ask you about this. Well, about Ara no, don't, let me finish. About Iran. Iran makes up 80% of Assad's forces, Hezbollah, all the Shia militias brought in by Iran. I want to ask you, as somebody who knows, why didn't you mention Iran? Because you cannot understand Syria. The billions the Iranians have, have been forced to you know, provide the Syrians and indeed undermine their own regime because the recent Iran protests, it's even suggested by some, okay. Robert, cost the Iranian economy even finished, more than the sanctions. So yeah. I, what I'm putting it to you really fundamentally, the Assad regime, as they said, as they told peaceful demonstrators in Syria, you, we will burn down the country rather than see democracy. And I put it to you, that's exactly what they've done. And in fact, if you look at Putin in Aleppo, which you didn't allude to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'd like to hear from you. I, like I, I, yeah. I think I've shared with you my I think analysis. We've, I, think we've got, I think we've got the point. Yes. 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 Thank you very much. I think much. the point here is this. Look, first of all, um, there never was a democracy in Syria. And it's not the regime's intention to have a democracy. I was there at the last, quote, election, which was totally fraudulent. I mean, anyone could pick up an election and throw it in. Uh, I saw them lying around on the immigration desk when I crossed the border. Votes for people to vote, right? Um, but there's no point in imagining that this country is suddenly going to become good or democratic or that Bashar is a democrat. He's not. Um, of course, uh, the French thought he was. Invite him and his wife to Bastille Day, remember, in what, 2007? A bit late in the day to do it. Um, I think you've got to realize something. The Iranian, the Russians are a real and powerful force in Syria. The Hezbollah are from Lebanon. But I haven't seen an Iranian on the front lines for more than a year. And the Syrian army are themselves quite hostile to the Iranians. They say that the Iranians lied when they, the Iranians, took part in the capture, recapture of eastern Aleppo. And I think they're right. They're particularly angry, and I'll put it in the words of one Syrian soldier, I think he was a captain, who said, look, the, we want the Iranians to come and fight for us. There are hardly any of them in here, and when they come, they say they want martyrdom. We don't want them to die, we want them to fight for us. I think there's probably fewer than 3,000 Iranian revolutionary guards in Syria. I think it's a big canard to say, Syria, Iran is taking over. I, I, I talked to a person who's basically in opposition to the regime, who does not believe even the stories that the Iranians are buying up hotels in the center of Damascus. Hezbollah is there in large numbers. Sorry? Iran is subsidizing and arming Hezbollah, but Hezbollah was in there before the Iranians were, and Hezbollah went in there for a very simple reason, because ISIS was threatening to come into the north east of Lebanon through Ersal. They got into Ersal, they executed Lebanese soldiers, they were there for four years, and they were only five miles from the main, main supply route from Hermel, where most of the um, Hezbollah weapons are kept in Lebanon, and Baalbek to the south and then to southern Lebanon. And they went in initially to destroy the Kalamun area 
rebels. That's why they went. They wouldn't have gone just for Assad. But they also went in around the area of Saida Zainab Mosque, which is a big Shiite mosque, which is a pilgrimage center for Iranians. You cannot delete the Iranian influence or presence on Syria, but you must not exaggerate it. The Hezbollah have a certain amount, not total in terms of weapons or money, but a certain amount of leeway for what they do. Remember that in 2006, when Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, wanted to have a ceasefire with the Israelis, Ahmadinejad, the crackpot president, very similar to Trump, called him up and said, keep fighting, and he said no. So Nasrallah has some leeway there to say no if he wants. But this is not the simple story of the horrible government, and it is, versus, uh, plus all the other horrible regimes, including Iran, versus the beautiful ISIS, uh, Free Syrian Army, Nusra, whatever you like to say. It goes back to the point I made originally. What happened when the tens of thousands of unarmed demonstrators exercising their obligation and their right to demonstrate against the regime, suddenly, within two months, it changed. Hang on, it's not a dialogue here. Another question. I think we need another question here. Look, we want other voices, please. And we have another one, yes. Uh, good evening, thank, thank you again, um, Robert, for joining us here. Um, very quick question. On yep. Iraq. We're not hearing you very clearly, so sorry. sorry it's our fault, not yours. Yeah, yeah, apologies. Um, a quick question on uh, Iraq. Uh, the uh, announcement yesterday that Al Amiri is joining in, in the coalition will, uh, with uh, Maqtadr al Sadr. Uh, good thing or bad thing for Iraq going forward? I'm not getting that question. Sorry, the. the the you probably do better without the mic, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the amplification in the, in the church rather than I'm any I'm going to go down and listen to him. It'll be much easier. Carry on, yeah. Uh, in Iraq yesterday, there was an announcement that uh, Matt Tatter is al Sadr mm-hmm. yeah. Mary, the yeah. pro-Iranian guy. Mm-hmm. Quick, quick thoughts. A good thing, bad thing for Iraq. Oh, right. I've got it. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have Muqtadr al-Sadr, Shiite leader? Look, he was always referred to by the Americans as a terrorist who must be wiped out or imprisoned. Um, He clearly has an enormous amount of support within the Shiite community. Without his militias, Mosul would not have been recaptured yet. It needed his militias with the Iraqi army and the American Air Force bombing, of course, to to basically erase Mosul and destroy ISIS in Mosul, though ISIS itself is not destroyed. Anyone... Whatever, however much blood in his hands, who is prepared to take part in a real democratic election, I mean a real one, not one set up and spun by the West. If they're prepared to go for the vote, they should be allowed to do so. Lebanon's parliament is full of people with blood on their hands. You know, and, and I, I meet them and talk to them and go out to dinner with them sometimes, and I know that they're responsible for mass death. So was Muqtadr al-Sadr, but he did fight the US Marines rather than his fellow Iraqis until it came to Mosul. I think that he's a vital, and I've always thought he was a vital part of the Iraqi landscape politically, and that he is probably the the most powerful young Shiite who should be in government, and if he gets into government, that's fine. We know, of course, in Iraq Iraq, there are lots of doubts about, you know, election fraud and so on, and uh, the the building carrying all the votes, lots of the votes burned down. Um, but I think he probably did win, and I think he should be in government. And, you know, the Americans 
have been to war with Arab leaders and then made friends later before they could again. But it's not the Americans anymore, is it? It's the Russians, and the Russians would be perfectly happy. All right. Well, look, all I can say is it makes Brexit seem like a walk in the park when you listen to <laughs> what's going on in the Middle East. Um, thank you very much for coming along. A change venue and so on, but everybody turned up in the end. And particularly, my thanks to Robert Fisk for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Dorky Book Festival podcast. And if you have any comments or queries or even suggestions or ideas for next year's festival, by all means, contact us at thedorkybookfestival.org.